there's still days where you've got to button down the hatches because that storm's coming and you want to get into the fetal position and get into bed. You know, them days still happen. And on those days, I need that reassurance that she's not going to leave me still. And after 24 years, because I'm convinced that it's something within me that isn't good enough. And that does go back to that. You know, why did you leave? Why didn't you want me? What did I do wrong? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Matt Brown, and you're listening to the Every L Podcast. Each episode, we'll have a different guest come on and talk about when life hands you an L, is it really a loss or is it something else? Because not every L's a loss. So sit back, relax, or do whatever you guys do to get comfortable as we get into this. Let's go. So welcome everyone to another episode of Every Old Podcast where we have different guests come on and explore when things go differently in your life to how you expect them to go. Is it really an L in terms of a loss or is it maybe a redirection, a workout session you need to go on in order to get the strength to become that person you need to be to carry the additional burdens that are going to come your way? I don't know. Maybe I'm just waffling. Maybe I'm telling facts. But we're not to know until we speak to this wonderful guest I have on. As you all know, you're probably saying, Matt, you just copy and paste the same intro. Pretty much I do. However, I am genuinely happy about this guest. And I I am so honoured to have so many people I'm connected with who are just people I just get on with. And I'm a multifaceted person too. My my personality is all over the place. But the people I meet, and hopefully you guys can all testify to, are some individuals that have got some life stories. And don't get wrong, it's only a small sample size. But the gems they drop are so powerful and so life-changing for not just you but the people you talk to about these episodes you listen to before i continue on that if you haven't already please review this if you're on apple podcast or rate it or rate it on spotify or wherever you consume this just because the more people that rate it the more eyeballs this get put in front of so they can listen to it and hopefully have their lives their perspective of life will be improved um but going back to my fantastic guest now this gentleman fun fact he was one of the first people outside of my immediate family to know my wife and I were expecting twins. He he was working on this app and I kind of jumped on like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll help out with it because I thought was just having a baby, a baby, not babies, baby, right? And all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, crap, I know him. Oh, he's going to know. Oh, I'm not ready to... Like I can process it between my wife and I, but I wasn't ready for those additional conversations yet, those additional questions. But credit to him, true to his word, didn't utter a word to anybody, was nothing but encouraging, supportive, just everything I didn't know I needed but was able to provide it for me. He's just a top guy. He's honest. He's humble. And he's his home life. It's beautiful. It's challenging, but it's beautiful. But he is so great that people like him, and I will have other guests on that are going to be in a very similar situation, but people like him who show me the blueprint of how to have a happy home, how to have a happy way about you, they're they're like gold dust to me, and I, I just appreciate them. So I'm so honoured to have him on, happy for him to share 
what it is he's going to share with you guys. Um, but without further ado, Scott, thank you for joining me. Could you give a bit of an intro about yourself and share what you want before we go into your L's? Mate, honestly, I think after that, I think we should just leave it there. I don't think I can say anything better than what you've just said. I think that's it. I think it's all downhill from here. But yeah, I'll try. I'll try and follow that. Um, yeah, thanks very much, mate. That means a lot to me. Um, so yeah, my name's Scott Mayer. My wife, Sarah, and I have got seven boys. And I'll answer the next two questions that are probably going around people's heads in advance that, no, we're not having any more. And yes, we do have a television. <laughs> and it's sort of my journey into these sort of conversations, this world comes from the experience of having those boys. Um, I now have the fortunate position of working with families and fathers and professionals, looking at the ways in which we can encourage and support fathers to be more engaged but I don't like the word expert, but that's what I get sort of brandished as, is mental health. It's mental health in new fathers. It's that sort of transition. It's what they go through with a real emphasis on when things don't go according to plan. So traumatic, difficult births or neonatal stays, premature babies. That sort of thing is where I find most of my work being done. It comes from the fact that we had some real difficult births. And on a couple of occasions, you know, I, I found myself really struggling um, to deal with what was going on. I had a very sick baby once and a wife that I said goodbye to because I thought I was going to lose her. And in that moment, it brought me. It brought me in ways I've never been able to articulate really and um, what that makes you feel. And when I say to people, I'm a former infantry soldier, you know, I thought I was able to deal with mental trauma and equipped to handle those sort of situations but when they happen to the people that, that you love the most you're not equipped you're not equipped as you think you are and it really really tested me and if it wasn't for the support of my incredible wife I don't think I'd be here and once I got to the point where I thought I felt strong enough to talk about it I almost became my purpose and um, that I had to sort of share a little bit and try and help other people because I was given that second opportunity because not, we'll go through it tonight, I'm sure. Um, but I was at that point where I didn't think there was any way back, you know. So I see everything I do now as a second chance. So I'm very, very grateful to be here and I look forward to talking to you. Look at that. I don't think I can beat that. And here he is just blowing out of the water. But this is why it's amazing, guys. Um, and girls, and however you identify. So as you guys know, I have a couple of L's here that you'd like to discuss. I don't know anything more than what's on here. And we're going to have a conversation around them. So the first L Scott would like to talk about is changing college course. Now that seems pretty straightforward, if I'm honest. But clearly, somewhere down the line, things went left instead of right for you. Feel free to go back to the top and tell me what happened for why you feel that changing college course was potentially an L. Yeah, it's... Yeah, again, we were just talking very briefly um, before we hit the record button. And the story of how my wife and I met and, and what we now have in terms of our relationship is a bit Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts. It does seem a little bit rom-com, um, but I mean, it is the truth. This, this is pretty much what happened to us. And I didn't know what I wanted to do sort of after school. Um, I had a few ideas and I, I was leaning towards sort of customs and excise. Um, there was a television program at the time, I'm going to show my age here, sort of early 90s, and, and it was called The Knock. 
and it made sort of customs and excise and inland revenue look like James Bond. Um, huh. I mean, it was kicking doors in, fast roping out of helicopters, all the good stuff. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I sort of inquired and I thought, this is, this is what I'll do. I'm going to go down that route. And then I went to, to London for the day to have a little look and found out it was a lot of tax returns and working in an office. And I thought, this, this ain't quite what I thought it was. So it was two days left um, to sort of um, register for college. And I was talking to a friend of mine and he, and I said, what, what are you doing? I said, because I'm at a bit of a loss. You know, I'd, I'd done really well um, with my exams. You know, I had good grades. And this sort of day in London has just sort of turned my life on its head. And at this point, I'd been through, I never want to say I had a difficult childhood, but, you know, there was issues. It definitely wasn't straightforward. It wasn't easy. Um, and as I go through this conversation today, one thing I'll talk about is identity. You know, and trying to understand who I was or where I fit into the world was something I've always struggled with. And he said, I'm going to join the police. I'm doing this course. So I said, all right, OK. Um, and I looked into it and I went and spoke to the police and I thought I could do arm response because that's exactly what I thought the job I was going to do with customs and excise. That's what that is. Arm response. Um, I could join the police and I could look if I do well then the path can follow because you can't just go straight in for anybody that doesn't know. I don't mean to insult people that do, but you can't just join the police as arm response. Um, so I thought I'll, I'll do this college course and I'll see how it goes. So we went, we did the induction um, Matt and I were just discussing that on the day that I went, um, my wife was in the queue doing the paperwork. Well, she wasn't my wife at the time um, was in the queue, a few people in front of me and she didn't have a pen to, to sign the forms, the registration forms. And they've looked around in the queue um, and the girl behind her didn't have one either. And my aunt, who is very much like my mum, I'm incredibly close to her. I'm very fortunate to have her in my life. She always told me from a very young age that a gentleman always carries a pen. So I took the pen out of my pocket and said, you know, you can borrow mine. And the sort of sparks fly, eyes met, all that sort of gooey stuff that you see in the movies actually happened to us. And then she's gone. And I remember getting to the front and, and, and doing my paperwork. And there was two different courses. There was one that was a year and there was one that was two years. And I was on the one that was doing two years, but I didn't know that Sarah had registered for the one that was doing the one year. So I've gone outside, said to my guys, did you see that girl? Denim jacket, blue Levi's t-shirt, long curly hair. Did you see her? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Said, do you know who she is? No. So I asked somebody else, do you know who this girl is? I think her name was Sarah. And they said, uh, no, no, I don't know her. And then this other girl said, um, yeah, I think her name is Sarah Brown. She went to a different school than I went to, but it was the same sort of area. And I said, right, I've got to find this girl. Um, almost a little bit creepy, you know, I thought I've got to find this girl. And I didn't quite manage to find her over the summer and because this was sort of registration day, so it was exam, GCSE exam results day. And then first day back at college, um, I turned up and they said that the, the course that we were looking to do um, they didn't have enough people on it. So it was going to have to be at a different college and we were going to have to re-register and move to another college or we could stay and go on the one-year course um, and stay at the college that I'd registered to join. And I said, I'll just stay here. I'll just do the one year here. And then I walked into the, the classroom and there's Sarah sat there. So, you know, at the time I was walking thinking, should I change course? Because that was the course I was supposed to do. It was the, the higher higher level. It was the diploma. Um, 
and I thought maybe I should have done that. Maybe I should have just gone to the other course. But it was more because my friend was at this college that I thought I'll just stay here. And then I've walked into the classroom and you know sat there was my now wife, mother of my seven children, you know my best friend. And the one thing that I I say quite a lot, and it's not trying to be too mushy, you know, but people have I'm not religious at all. Um, I think I'm probably a little bit more religious because of the things that have happened to me. Um, I think I believe in something. I believe in the universe. I believe that things happen for a reason. I genuinely believe there's too many things that have happened in my life that I'd be stupid not to think that things happen for a reason. Um, but I wasn't particularly religious. And But now as time's gone by, as life's gone on, you know, that I, if I was religious, I'd, I would pray to my wife. You know, I am incredibly grateful for everything that she's given me, everything that she's shown me that I can be and everything good in my life came from that woman. You know, everything good that I am came from that woman. And there's times which we'll probably touch on um, when we go down the sort of the darker mental health route where my life got really, really bad. Um, and there was times I just didn't think I could feel like this anymore. And I gave up on me. I gave up on me. I know I did. And she didn't. And that's the only reason I'm still sat here. Um, and I genuinely believe that with all my heart is that she just hold, she held on to me. And when people ask about supporting someone mental health, you know, a lot of the work that I do and it's how can I help? How can I support? How can I get them out of this? And you know, the one thing I always try and say is you can't, you know, all you can do is just hold on to them tightly enough um, until that sort of storm passes. And that's what she did for me. You know, she held on to me. But That's beautiful because... I think in society today, we're too busy caught up in the Instagram, the TikToks where everything's got to be done instantaneously or I would liken it to the phrase of it's better to go slow in the right direction than go fast in the wrong direction. And the fact that you seem to have just not pushed it, just lived your life, just did you. Let's be honest, if Scott didn't have that pen at that time, if he didn't take heed to his aunt, could be a very different future for him, a very different reality for him. So, no, that is beautiful. And it's nice to hear that such stories still exist today and people can have a a connection like that so instantaneously and it not being rushed because people just doing it for the status, for the accolades or whatever you want to call it. But they're doing it because it's a genuine connection. They wanted to explore that and here you are today. So, was your dad in your life? No. Okay. I asked that because you mentioned about your aunt and how influential she was. So, I'm thinking, okay, why was it a woman that did it? Not saying it's a bad thing. My mum raised me to be a man. No shame in that. But I was interested to sort of think, what did your dad tell you to do versus what your aunt told you to do? But that would make sense as to why, am I wrong in that assumption, that why your aunt was as forthcoming with the information that she did? No, you're not wrong at all. And it, it, and maybe there's a there's a reason. Maybe there is, but the aunt that's in question is my dad's sister. Um, so it almost, there is a few conversations, you know, there is things that we've discussed um, that maybe there was that because my dad had left at, at a very young age. I mean, we I was born just outside Glasgow and we moved down to England when I was sort of four or five. And then at, six pretty much my my dad left and things changed and there was a few years where it was just sort of me my mum my sister 
my mum then met somebody else when I was 11, remarried, and I had a, a little stepsister. But before that, you know, my, my auntie had become very much involved and maybe trying to fill the void, the fact that, you know, it was her brother that had gone. So that the, there was little bits of contact. You know, I'd seen my dad a few times. Um, he lived abroad. So that there was a couple of times. And it always looked cool um, to sort of some of my friends because my dad lived in Spain. I would go out there for a few weeks and summer holidays. And there was once I spent the whole summer holidays in Tenerife. And everybody talks, oh, yeah, that, that was fantastic, you know. But there wasn't that relationship the rest of the year. You know, there wasn't really that contact. There wasn't the things that you may be doing. Yet, yet again, I've turned that, I say I, we, as in Sarah, because, you know, she's helped me become the parent that I am. I wouldn't have done it on my own, but... From a very young age, I knew the father I was going to be based on the one that I didn't have, you know. And I, I do have a relationship with my dad now, um, and you know, we we do have certain conversations, and but it's not quite the same. And I understand that you can't always get from people what you would expect, and you can't always expect people to do what you would do. And I think it took me a very, very long time. There was a lot of bitterness. There was a lot of misunderstanding as I grew, but. It helped me become, it helped shape the father that I knew I wanted to be based on the one that I didn't have, you know, and, and that is quite hurtful when I sort of say that about my dad, I suppose. But it definitely helped me with the fact that I knew the conversations I would have. I knew the fact that I, I had to be there. I had to be present. I had to sort of be in my children's life because I knew the, the things that happened to me that I could have done with that and it wasn't there. not looking for sympathy it's not poor me because there's a lot of people that had what lot worse situations than i did and there's a lot of people that have went on to achieve far greater things than i ever have that have come from worse backgrounds but i think that the work that i do and understanding the relationship between a father and his children particularly a father and a son not just in a professional capacity you know and research and working with men and families and but you know, with my children and, and seeing that relationship and seeing what what they get. And unfortunately, with my eldest son, who's nearly 20, um, I see, and I had this conversation the other day with a friend of mine who's got children that are younger than mine, um, or I've, you know, I've got all ages, but um, with my older ones in particular, there's a lot of conversations that you have. And this, anybody that's listening that, that's got children, will go through these stages um, and I'm not trying to sound superior it's only because I've done it so much and I am that little bit further down the road in terms of age but we have conversations and there's things that we try and do with our children and the seeds that we try and plant that you don't always see the benefits and you don't think they're listening to you and you don't think they're taking that information on and you wonder where you're maybe going wrong or how you can get them to listen or how can I get them to take this information because I want to protect them. Um, and then as they get older, there'll just be a few things that they do or say or how they handle a certain situation and, and you just get that moment where they did listen. You know, and, and it's a bit it's a bit like being a gardener, I suppose, you know. Um you just you start to see that garden flourish. You can't you see the flowers bloom as they get a little bit older and you need that sometimes because, you know, it's parenting's tough, man. I mean, I say this all the time. 
greatest thing you'll ever do in your whole entire life, but it's the most difficult and it's okay to be both. And I think we live in a society that tells you that it's supposed to be one or the other. And it's not, it's absolutely both. You know, you have black and white and parenting is in the gray. I mean, that's where we spend most of our time and you don't always see the big picture and you, you don't think that you're doing the right thing. And we touched on it before we went live. You know, you, you second guess your decisions and everything that you do for your children. And there's a lot of guilt in parenting. You know, every choice that you make, you have to justify it in your own mind that you're doing the things right and are you doing it right for their children? And are they going to feel about you the way that you maybe feel about certain things your parents did as you grow up? Chances are they probably are. They might not be the same things, but there's going to be things because we're going to get things wrong. And as parents, I think nobody really prepares us for the fact that some days you're going to get it all wrong, monumentally. You know, you're just going to get it all wrong. And other days you're going to get it all right and it's going to make it look easy. And those are the days that balance out the days where you get it all wrong. But as they get older, as life challenges them, and at any age, you know, something that I don't talk about a great deal, um, but my eldest son had some real difficulties at school. And life, from from sort of mental health point of view, life's been pretty tough on him. Um, I won't go into details because it's not my story to tell, but, you know, he's had difficult times, um, but he overcome them. You know, and and you know, he dug deep and he came through them. And there was things that conversations that we had, and tips and advice and support that I tried to give. That sometimes I thought he's not listening, he's not taking this on board. You know, and then he gets through something, and you think all he's done is he's took what I've said and he's turned it into what he needed. And he didn't maybe do it in the same way, but it was just enough of a little bit, or a little bit of advice here and a little bit of advice there, and then. He might have seen something online. He might have spoke to a friend. He'll take little bits from his mom. He'll take little bits from other people. And they they make their own path. And I think as parents, we don't always see that when they're small right up to adolescence. And then when they get to those teenage years and they start to pull away, which is probably one of the most difficult parts of parenting, is that letting them go. Um, And the only way I've been able to describe it is anyone that's got a dog, we mentioned I'm trying to train a puppy right now, so I've got dogs on the brain, but you've got one of those extendable leads. And I think sometimes with parenting, it's just that lead might be really stretched, but you always know they're on the end of it and you can bring them back. You know, you know you've got hold of them enough and they'll go around a few corners and you'll panic and you'll get scared, but you can always sort of, you can always bring them back and when they're ready, they come back. But in that period, they're figuring out who they are. And you've got to let them have that space. And that's where I'm sort of with a few of my boys now is they've gone through that, figuring things out on their own stage and, and they come back. And I think a lot of the work that I've tried to do, I ain't parent of the year. You know, not even close, man. Jesus, no. Um, and I do still get it wrong a lot. Um, and I'm not trying to sit here and say that I get it right all the time because I don't. But when they get older, you see the work that you did when they were younger that you don't necessarily give yourself enough praise for or give yourself enough acknowledgement for. And I definitely get that now. Um, and for the first time in my whole life, whether it's because I didn't have the relationship with my dad or whether it's to do with everything else that's happened, it's mental health, it's parenting, it's college choices, it's the military, whatever it is. This is the first time in my whole life that I can honestly say that I know who I am. And I'm happy with it and I can accept it, you know, Um, and I'm not trying to change it. And a lot of that is because of my children. You know, they 
they teach me far more than I ever taught them because I think they taught me who I am and what I'm capable of. And without being a father, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I changed the the bitterness that I didn't have my father there. And when things went wrong, I used to use it for an excuse. And then as I get older, I actually there was a like a change in the mindset of, well, it wasn't so much that I missed out because he wasn't there. He missed out because he wasn't there. You know, and I think that when I got to that realization, that that was life changing, and it took so much pressure off. So, what age would you roughly when you found that out? When you was able to understand that he's the one that missed out, opposed to you missing out? Oh, thirty-five, I think. Yeah, I was it a long time. It took me a long time, um, and I think a lot of that is. One of the biggest problems I ever faced, and it goes back to that sort of college choice, um, and it haunted me most of my life, is I, I was never really comfortable in my own skin. You know, I was never really, um, people call it perfectionist. I, I don't think, I think it's a lot deeper than that. And trust me, I've gone through therapy to discuss this a couple of times. That I just, I never really knew who I was or what I was. And I was always trying to be what I thought other people thought I should be. And and I was told that a lot of that was because I didn't understand why my dad had left and why that relationship wasn't there and why certain things happened. And you're always trying to maybe please. And I became a people pleaser. Um, and I think that, that that troubled me. And it definitely added to my mental health problems without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and it definitely it changed the way that I look at life. But I reckon, yeah, easy, mid-30s before I really took stock and realised that um, I wasn't the problem, you know, and it wasn't my fault. And it wasn't necessarily me that was left. It was him that had to go. And that was his issues. That was his that had to sort out. It wasn't anything to do with me. And But yeah, I was, I was a lot, I was a lot older than I'd like to be. And I think that's, I try and have these conversations. Um, I do speak to friends of my boys. You know, I try and one of the projects that I'm really focusing on at the moment is, you know, speaking to, to teenagers. You know, and speaking in schools and having certain conversations about life, um, and how to, like what you're doing. You know, that life will throw you some curveballs and it'll bring you to your knees, man. It will bring you to your knees. And Rocky Balboa quotes it far better and more articulately than I ever will. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. No, life is cruel. It can be really cruel, and sometimes you won't understand why. And like your podcast is proving that there is a why. You know, it it might take two weeks, it might take two years, it might take two decades, but eventually you'll figure out why all these things had to happen. And if my childhood hadn't been what it had, and if I hadn't gone through some of the things that I'd gone through, I don't think I'd be the man that I am today. And I know I wouldn't be the father that I am. So it was a hard lesson, but it was one that was worth it for a shadow of a doubt. I appreciate you sharing all that because it's a lot, and I didn't expect it to go the way it did. Neither did I. <laughs> nice to know that there was actually a benefit for me asking that question because funny how... I was raised by a woman and I could identify with how potentially you was being raised by a woman as well. Just by one little thing of you saying, 
my aunt always told me <laughs> to do this. Why was it your aunt? Why did you listen to your aunt? No disrespect for saying not to listen to your aunt, but why opposed to someone else? That that was the, te- the tale for me. I'm conscious I want to get onto the next L, but you explained eloquently how you handled that situation, how you came to it, how you navigated that time in your life, no matter how lengthy the time was before you became comfortable in your own skin, no longer being a people pleaser, you didn't necessarily do what you did to please anyone. I'd like to think you just thought, well, I was always told this, I respect this person, so do what they said. But by following those instructions, it just so happened that opportunity, preparation, sorry, met opportunity, and therefore you met your lovely wife, your now wife, and you have a beautiful family going forward. But you still had to wrestle with all those thoughts about, I guess, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but potentially neglect because you're trying to please people, but then you still can't necessarily understand why this person felt it was appropriate to just go, peace, and go, and never look back. Yes, may have had you a couple of weeks over the summer holidays or whatever else, but you still had to navigate those feelings. And that can be very hard because in theory, you, you it would make sense why you're potentially indecisive because you're trying to please people and you don't know who you're trying to please. It's a bit like trying to answer, answer all the questions, but you don't know what the questions are. So you can't you sure. can't know all the answers if you don't know the questions. You can't please people if you don't know all the people you're going to meet. But you made a decision. When you when you decided to do what you did, like the choice you made, was you sold on it? Or was it only when you saw your wife you thought that's definitely the right decision? Yeah, no, yeah. When I when I see Sarah, I knew instantly this was the right decision. And it was as if it was just, yeah, again, this is where I'm supposed to be. Because up until that point, um, yeah, I wasn't I really wasn't sold. I wasn't really very sure that this was the right choice. But I think you just made a really, really good point. Um, and I think it's something that only recently, um, and I know this is sort of going off topic, so I do apologise, but only recently have I really been able to understand and articulate a lot of the the issues that I've faced in my life, particularly as an adult with this people-pleasing. Um, and it was the, if I don't, if I don't give you what you wanted from me, you will leave me. And 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 that is definitely um, something that I've experienced. And when we go on to the next L, you know, I'll go into a little bit more detail, but it's even, I mean, me, me and Sarah have had this conversation a few times, you know, that I do when I'm at my lowest, even still, you know, because we talk about mental health, we talk about recovery. Recovery doesn't mean it's gone away. Recovery just means you've got a handle on it and you can manage it a bit better. But, there's still days where you've got a batten down the hatches because that storm's coming and you want to get into the fetal position and get into bed. You know, them days still happen. Um, and on those days, I need that reassurance that she's not going to leave me still. And after 24 years, because I'm convinced that it's something within me that isn't good enough. Um, and that does go back to that. You know, why did you leave? Why didn't you want me? What did I do wrong? Um, and I am addressing it. I am getting a bit better at it now. But yeah, so going back to question you asked it was yeah the minute i seen her i thought yeah this 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 was absolutely i never thought about it again you know i never looked back i never doubted that choice from that point i know without without a doubt it's the best choice of my life so that helped you to stop second guessing yourself then 
Yeah, I, I definitely. I think from that point, and it's funny, Matt, right? Because when when I speak to people, because of the the work that, that I do, because of social media, and even before that, right? So in college, or whether it was playing football, my time in the military, in work, whatever it is, people think I'm quite confident, you know, um, bit of a jack the lad, bit of a class clown. It was the sort of persona that I had at a younger age, and. Sarah was the first person that seen behind the curtain. Um, and I think it was from that point, she was the first person that I could ever let my guard down with. And it happened very, very quickly. And within a few weeks, I felt completely at ease that she could see the real me and not be scared. Um, and that was probably one of the turning points. Obviously, meeting her and going and choosing that course is all really important. But the day that I thought, She's not t- particularly horrified by the fact that you know I'm I'm a little bit damaged was how I used to sort of think about it in my own head. So I always had this front that I presented, um, and I think for for an awful long time. But there's still behind that confidence, behind that front that I I sometimes have to put on. And when you are delivering training or, or talking publicly, you know people don't always believe or wouldn't necessarily believe um, that that little insecure we voice still in there you know and sometimes he needs a little bit extra encouragement to come out and so she still does that you know sarah's still the one that has to sort of not not big me up it's not a case of stroking the ego it's, it's just that reassurance um and you know I, I am very fortunate that you know she still has to do that but she was the first person that ever and that includes you know my own mum who i did live with um and i'm not going to sit here and, and dig out my whole family because that's not what this is about but she, Sarah was the first person that you know I was allowed to be me, and I was allowed to sort of feel comfortable with with who I am and not have to apologise for it. And there's so much we could talk about this all day. So yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, that walking in that room, I knew instantly it was the best decision, and I still stand by the fact it was the best decision to this day. So, if that's not an L, what is it? Oh, it's a win, man. It's the biggest win. It's the biggest win there is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about for Sarah. Maybe not so much a win for Sarah, but it was a win for me. <laughs> no, she had to wait a bit longer. She had to wait until the kids came along. <laughs> oh, joking. Yeah, then, then, yeah, then she thought, you know what? This, this this wasn't that bad an idea. Although she wasn't expecting seven boys. Let's put it that way. No, that's much really appreciated. What we do, let's jump onto the second L, because I'm very conscious of time. It's the second L, and you've alluded to slightly. So leaving the army through injuries now that sounds a little bit like and for those that want to know we're recording this around the world cup time so there's people that want to go to the world cup they've been prepping for it for the longest time and unfortunately someone have to pull out through injuries some have sustained injuries during after and um, before it whatever else they can't do it so i'm assuming when i'm reading this scott's like done all the training got himself prepped mentally physically and everything else wants to go out there doing this thing, but can't continue because of injury. One, I'm interested to know what type of injury, but I can only imagine what it must feel like doing all the work beforehand and then all of a sudden you can't continue because of injury. Please, tell me what happened. Yeah, this this defined who I was for far too long. Um, and it haunted me for a very long time. And, and what I've sort of touched on with the sort of relationship and the, the, the issues that I've had with this, you know, going back to 
why my dad didn't want me when I was little and that people around me leave me if I can't provide what they need. And that narrative was fed into, you know, by the, because the army become family um, and without a shadow of a doubt. And once you can't provide what you want, they almost just throw you away, you're disregarded. And that breakdown in the relationship that I didn't want, it's almost like, it was compared to me once um, that it's like a divorce. And, you know, sometimes there's one person that wants that divorce or they want that breakdown in their relationship and there's one that doesn't. And the one that doesn't sometimes pines for the relationship they thought they had and they didn't want it to break down. And that was what it was like for me. I, I didn't understand um, what was going to happen, what I was going to do, um, who I was without being a soldier, which is really funny considering the fact that it wasn't even my first or second choice for what I was going to do as a career. It wasn't even my third choice. Um, and we'd gone through college. We'd, we'd finished the first year. Um, we'd been offered the chance to do a second year. And then if you did the second year, it was like a gateway to go to university to do a degree in sports science. So I, me and Sarah had gone back to college. And most of our friends had finished after the first year. And our tutor, who we were incredibly close to, and up until a few years ago, we were still speaking to, we were still friends, and then we just sort of lost contact. But um, So best part of 20 years. And so he left. He took another job at a university. So when we went back, it was new lecturer, new sort of training team, new cohort, and it was just me and Sarah, and it just never felt the same, you know, because we... we we missed our friends. We we're in the same building, going through the same routine. It just, it felt, it just didn't feel right at all. So I said to Sarah, I says, I'm not feeling this. So we got to about Christmas and Sarah said, I, I don't want to do it anymore, Scott. And I said, you know what? I don't want to do it either. So I went to the recruitment office and I went to find out about different forces. There was a few reasons for this. One um, was sort of my mum, my stepdad, a little bit of pressure. So I went to the Air Force first and they said, what would you want to do? So I told them my, my interest and they said, you could be a police officer in the Air Force. You could be um, a fitness instructor. And I said, OK. And at this time we were living in um, Warwickshire. And they said that the um, the fitness instructors for the Air Force train in a place called Cosford, which is Wolverhampton, which is literally an hour down the road. And that's where you would be stationed permanently if you wanted to be. So I thought that would be all right. I'm not that far from Sarah. Because um, at this point, we were sort of 17 and a half. We'd already got engaged. We'd already said as soon as we were 18, we're getting married. Um, and we just hadn't really particularly set a date, but we knew as soon as we were old enough, we were getting married. So I said, we can get married and either you can stay here or we'll get an Air Force house. And then I did the test, did the entry exam. They told me that I could do it. I, I passed the test, but they said, come back at 18. And I thought, I'm not waiting six months. And literally, right, this this could be a win, it could be a loss, you really don't know. But I walked out of the recruitment office. At this time, I smoked, right? Terrible habit, but I did. Um, so I've lit a cigarette, and there was a guy outside the army recruitment office. I keep pointing, nobody can see what I'm doing, but I'll do it anyway. So there was a guy on the other side of my bedroom. Um, there was a guy on the other side of the road having a cigarette outside the army office. And he said, what's up, mate? And um, so I told him. He says, oh, you know, you can join the army now. I says, all right. He says, you could do the same thing. You could be a fitness instructor in the army if you want. I says, okay. He says, come in, I'll show you some stuff. 
So I went in and he said, you do this thing, it's called a Barb test. It's like a computer IQ test. And it'll, they print out based on your score, what you can join in the military. Um, and I, I, I scored pretty well. The only thing, I couldn't, I'm not very good at engineering, but that doesn't surprise me. I'm still not very good at engineering. Um, and I couldn't be an aerial erector. Um, but most other things um, I probably could have done or I could have scraped through in, in certain areas. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I really don't know. I said, I, if I'm going to be a soldier, I just want to be a soldier. You know, like Soldier, Soldier was a TV show right back in the 90s, Robson and Jerome. And I said, that, that looks like fun. And they had this like infantry poster with tanks and stuff. And I thought, yeah, I said, that looks good. And he says, right, okay. And he said, but if if you want to join a Scottish regiment, because obviously being Scottish, um, if you join the infantry, you can only join the regiment from where you're born, like your local area. You can't just pick anyone you want. Um, and I said, right, okay. So we, we mapped it all out and he says, this is what you could join. Um, and it was all sort of kilts and tartan and, and made me feel very homesick. So I thought, yeah, that, I'll do that. I'll join the infantry. So I went up, joined the infantry and, you know, like school, college, even the relationship with Sarah, you know, I, I played quite a bit of football. Most things had, had, had been, I wouldn't say easy, um, but I, you didn't have to overly try. You know, things just came a little bit naturally. I was quite fortunate. The army didn't. You know, the army was a shock. Man. Um, and I was quite fit. You know, I could run. I could do press-ups, set-ups, that sort of stuff. There was no real issues there. Um, and I was only 17, so you, you should be barely fit at that age if, you, if you're not injured. And I was I was okay. And when you do the training, you do basic training. Um, and that's what everybody that joins the army does. And then you go into your specialised training, so which would mine would have been infantry. So I went, I settled in, you do the ironing, cleaning boots, going for runs, you know, tidying your room, doing your lockers, all that sort of stuff. Wasn't that much of a trouble. Um, and then we had to do, like, shooting. So you had to go on the rifle range and you learn how to shoot. And I was dreadful, Matt. Like, literally dreadful. I mean, if I fell into a volcano, I wouldn't hit lava. It was so bad, man. Um, <laughs> just, I, I can't emphasize enough for anybody. It was just bad. And the first one that you do, it's a bit like the old laser quest. So it's not even a real range. And like, if like 40 was the past, I was like 12, 13 was what I was. I was it was honestly, it was embarrassing. Um, so I, I asked if I could practice. And I practiced. Um, and I tried to practice sort of position that you lie in and the way that you hold the rifle because it, it, there's so much to it it's not just pulling a trigger and hitting a target there's more to it than that and I was trying to understand the science behind it and it's where I do a lot of breathing techniques still when I get a bit anxious or a bit overwhelmed and this is where it started trying to control that breathing and um, calm myself down and so I went through as much practice as I could and I failed it twice and if you fail it on the third time that's it you're gone um, they used to call it back squatted. It means you start again. And we were at sort of week eight or nine by this point. And I thought, I'm not starting again. Um, and I passed it by one. Literally, I think I got like 41. So Still passed just, it. Just scraped through. And I thought, right, okay. But because it, it was the first thing that I'd ever really, really, really had to hone in and work at and focus and try, it makes you want it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so at this point, I was probably more invested than I'd been at any point. And I thought, I really like this. And then I said I was quite fit, I was quite healthy. And 
I could run, I could do all this sort of stuff. And then they put weight. So you have to start carrying weight. So you get what they call a burden. So you your backpack and you have to start carrying weight over distance. And I sort of folded like a cheap clothes horse. You know, I just, you know, a donkey, I was not. <laughs> I just could not carry the weight. I just wasn't strong enough. Um, and I really, really, really struggled to the point that um, I got through. I passed, you know, I, I, I got through first time basic training. But my, it's a bit like the old school reports could do better, you know. When I finished training, my training corporal said, you won't pass infantry training. There's no way. Um, not strong enough. And you used to get sort of two to three to four weeks break between finishing your basic training and going on to your advanced training. And we were very unfortunate. My group of lads, we finished on the Friday in basic training and started infantry training on the Monday. So we actually had two days off. and We went straight into the next phase of training, which never, ever happened. We were just really unlucky. So it's not as if anything major happened. I didn't. I'd love to sit and tell you that I went beefed up, went to the gym, and did all this stuff over the summer. I didn't. I had two days difference. But it was that report of he's not going to do it. It was a bit like a red rag, you know. I was like, you know, I will. And we got to infantry training. I did go to the gym more. You know, I did try and strengthen up. I practiced. I carried as much weight. Every I went to Tesco's. In an evening, if we were allowed to go and get some chocolate and crisps, I carried weight. I did everything I could to get myself up to standard. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you this nonsense story about how I went on to become top recruit, but I finished in the top bracket, um, which is sort of like a B or a B plus. Um, and I remember sitting with one of my training corporals that said that they didn't see this kid that wasn't going to make it. For In that two days from going from one to the other, something shifted, something changed, you know, and I realized I maybe I had to try a little bit harder, you know, I had it. I wasn't going to get by just on the, what had sort of helped me get by the rest of my life. Um, so it, th at that point I made a decision. This is me. This is my career now. 22 years is what you can serve in the army to do a full career. You can sometimes take more if you want to, or you can get commissioned to an officer. Um, but I decided this is me now, 22 years. This is my career. That's what I want to do. I'm going to get to my unit. I'm going to work hard. I'll get promoted. I'm going to come back and be a training instructor at some point. Um, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. It just, it was that sort of family that I maybe didn't have that, that real sort of closeness, that camaraderie, that do anything for you type friendships. It's not like any friendships I had as a civilian or as a kid. It was different. Um, Sarah, obviously she backed me, you know, we got married. And um, when I finished my infantry training, um yeah again we didn't get any any holiday we went straight straight to work so me and sarah got married on the 7th of december 2000 and i'd finished training on the 4th um and i had to re i had to return back to work on the 9th so we literally got a couple of days a couple of days to arrange the wedding and then a day after the wedding then i was back at work and wow straight back to work and then sent out went to cyprus that was my first posting went out to cyprus um and Sarah got to come out for a little while and then we got our first house was in a place called Catrick, North Yorkshire, which is where I actually did my training. It's where the infantry training school is. And we lived there um, and things were great. We were happy and everything was all right. I had a couple of really bad injuries. I broke my leg a few times, really bad. And this sort of young 19, 20 year old bulletproof alpha male that thought he could take the world on didn't listen to the doctors. 
didn't listen to the physios and didn't want to be the guy on the sick because in the in the army that's just not cool. Um, so you push yourself a little bit too far, and I pushed myself to do a um a tour that I probably shouldn't have done, um, and it caused a lot of problems, which I still pay for now. Um, but it was we my wife was pregnant with um my eldest and i was out training in canada a place called battus training camp it's like cold weather training um and it was used as pre-deployment for iraq so it's sort of this is 2002 2003 and gone out there doing the training i went um did my my duties um they call it century duties here on guard i did that for an hour then i went to sleep Four hours later, woke up blind, couldn't see nothing completely and utterly blind. Um, and at first I thought for anybody that's ever camped or anybody that's had any sort of been in the military at all, the sleeping bags that we have actually zip right up over your head. Right. Um, so it literally becomes a contour, like yeah. no joke, right? It literally zips all the way up to the top. So I didn't like having my face covered up. I never slept that, even though it was really cold in Canada. Um, and I remember thinking, I must have just pulled my zip too high. And I hadn't. Um, and as I've sort of fumbled about, I thought, oh, God. Um, so I sort of shouted my mate who was next to me. And he came over and I said, you know, it's a bit like anybody ever remembers Biker Grove. There was a scene in Biker Grove with Ant and Dick. And Dick you know, gets paint in his eyes and he goes blind. It was a bit like, no, I can't see, mate. You know, I really can't see nothing. Um, so went to the medical center, had some treatment. Um, there was all sorts of complications. And I got sent back um, to the UK, had some treatment very quickly. They decided that, you know, this is going to be something that would prevent me being in the military. And we lost our sort of our army home, our friends, everything happened really, really quickly. I mean, I'm talking, I arrived back in the UK and within 10 days we were out of our house. Wow. Um, And gone. And Sarah was sort of very heavily pregnant. So it all sort of coincided with um, this happening, leaving the military. I didn't think I was ever going to see my son because I didn't think my vision was going to come back. And this was at the end of the pregnancy. And fortunately, you know, it did start to come back um, after a few months. And it turns out it's a cyst that I've got in my brain um, that I still have. They can't take it out. But as a result, I've probably got like 75% of my vision back. Um, so I can function pretty well, but... I still have difficult. Like I don't have what they call peripheral vision, um, so I'm just pretty much tunnel visioned. I have to wear glasses now. Without my glasses on, I can't really see very much. But um, so I'm very fortunate that I got the degree back that I did. Um, it still gets monitored, it gets treated, but I lost my way for a very long time after that. Um, it impacted on me massively. The the I didn't know who I was or what I was, or where I was supposed to go, or what I was supposed to be. And I thought I was going to be in the military for the rest of my life, um, within reason. Um, but I definitely thought it would be my career, and I wouldn't really do anything else. And all of a sudden, I'm trying to figure out what I do now, and where I go now. And lots of guys, I've, I've done a lot of work with veterans, um, that, that they go through that transition of, what do I do now? They're not being told where you got to go, what you've got to do, and when you've got to be there is, is, is quite difficult sometimes and that transition is quite hard and trying to find what your new purpose, your new normal looks like as a civilian is a difficult transition and I definitely found it so 
Um, but I just kept going back to the fact that it wasn't my choice, you know, and it was this, um, what I thought I was going to be, what I thought I was going to have was taken away from me. And I found that really, really difficult. And for far too long, I just completely lost my way. I, for a year, I, I fell into the trap of thinking you've got to be the, the provider and the earner and try and earn as much money and, and work as, as hard as I could to provide for my children. And I very, I would say pretty quickly, realized that by the time baby number two had come along that I, I didn't want that. You know, I wanted to be around as much as I could and try and sort of find that balance of um, working, earning, but having a good quality of life, which I know is really difficult. And it's a balance that lots of people find really hard to find. Um, but I did, I, I lost my way. And the reason that I, I sort of turned that into an L is for a very long time, I believed that if I wasn't a soldier because I was supposed to be a soldier, what was I going to be? And it took a very long time. Um, and I got to the stage where I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing now. Um, I probably wouldn't have seven boys. You know, I wouldn't have the relationship that I have with my children if I'd stayed in the military and spent so much time away. Wow. So that's that's a lot that you've just sort of unpacked there. And mate, this could be episodes for days right now. We <laughs> kind of take you back to what was the actual reason for why you lost your vision at the time? Or was it just the cis was doing something at that point and then you had to have treatment to reduce it? What what happened there? Yeah, it it, it took a while. To officially find out and there was at first they were pretty stumped and they didn't know what had caused it and they looked at sort of psychosomatic various different other reasons and but it turned out that yeah so i have this it's called a subarachnoid cyst it's about a golf ball size and it actually moved and when they scanned it they could see that it like a snail trail that sort of slimy snail they could pick it up on the scan that it had moved and it had attached to the back of the optical nerve and it caused what they call optical neuritis, which was just inflammation. So what, for all intents and purposes, what was happening was that the light gets in, but it doesn't reflect back out. And so the, the, sometimes the, the eye or the brain can still see, but it can't reflect it back out. So you don't get the, the image. And that the inflammation was what had caused it. But the inflammation, the damage to the optical nerve is why I sort of still have certain issues now. Um, I have what they call glaucoma. Okay which is in the, the sort of family genes. I probably was going to get it, but I just got it a little bit earlier and a little bit more severe. And I have extreme sort of like bright lights. Like I wear sunglasses quite a lot. And if I um, come into a room or a building or sometimes like um, if I'm doing a, a talk outside, for example, I did a few of them in the summer and I'll sit with sunglasses on. And it's not because I think that I'm a rock star. It's because but you are. My eyes are very, <laughs> my eyes are very sensitive. So, but it's still it's a small price to pay. But yeah, that's a, to all intents and purposes. But because of where it was, it was underneath the cranium. I'm not going to try and sound like I'm more intelligent when it comes to medicine, but 
it's very difficult to get to. So the decision, I actually seen quite a few specialists in different parts of the world to try and find out what the best thing to do was. And the general consensus was, unless it causes much more problems in the future, we'll leave it be because to drill down to get it can cause more damage. Um, but there is the possibility that if it moves again, you know, it could be paralyzed, could have a stroke, loss of speech. Um, but for the last 10 years, the scans have been clear. You know, it's not grown, it's not changed, um, it's not moved, it's pretty much behaving itself. So we just sort of carry on and hope for the best. That's all you can do, isn't it? Long may it continue. That's it, mate. That's it. So, yeah, it's not... I don't really think about it much, to be fair. In the first first five years, I think I thought about it a lot. Um, and the same with the... A lot of the work I try and do um, in certain areas, particularly around about disabilities, because I have, like, severe chronic pain. Um, and the the damage to my leg that I ignored, I had to have about six surgeries to try and repair it and rebuild it, and it, it just made it worse. Um, and between that and the problem with the vision and feeling a bit sorry for myself that I have technically what they class, I, I do have disabilities, but I let my disabilities make me disabled, if that makes sense. Um, and I bought into the narrative of what I was being told. And part of losing my way was buying into that and, and believing that. And I'm not trying to belittle anybody else at any situations that anyone's in, but from me, from my point of view, I felt sorry for myself for too long um, because I couldn't do what I thought I could do before because I wasn't the man that I thought I once was. And because I couldn't play football with my kids, then I was no good. Um, and not looking at the fact that I could do other things, you know, and I, I was capable of the things that I now do with my children um, and the conversations that I have in the parent yet again that I've tried to become is because we all have limitations some physical some are mental some are financial you know some of the work that we have to do some of the fact that we have to work overseas even friends of mine are still in the military that spend six months of the year away sometimes um, we all have different limitations in terms of how we parent and it took me a long time yet again to, so I am a cautionary tale I'm not sitting here looking for praise I don't want anybody to think I'm particularly great because I'm not I am sort of what happens if you if you try and turn it around you know I, I don't class it as a success story because I don't see me as a success story but there was lots of times where things could have gone a lot better and you almost self-sabotage because you're maybe scared of, of what might happen if, if you try so it's easier not to a little bit and blame it on the fact that poor old Scott's got a cyst in his head he's got sore eyes he's got a poor leg or boo-hoo I did do that for far too long that when I got to the stage where I am now, this is what I mean. Somebody asked me once, and I will move on because I understand where I don't want to keep you all night, but I was once, not once, a few months ago I was asked, if you could go back to any stage or any age in your life, what would you go back to? And everybody else in the room was going back, go back to my 20s, and I'd tell myself all the things that I've done now, where I'd go back to school. God, I'd never go back to school. Even though it was all right for me, I'd never go back to school. But... I said, I, I mean, I'm 40 now. My wife, Sarah, says that we're not. We're 39 plus one because she refuses to accept <laughs> that she's 40. Um, but I am. I'm 40. I would go back to 39. That's as far back as I would want to go because I am in the best stage of my life, you know. And, and for the first time in my life, if someone says, like, well, like who are you or who is Scott Mayer, I can say I am me. Yeah. You know, and I've never been able to say that before, you know. And it, all these things along the way that, 
my whole life is a, an L that got turned around, you know, because there's been lots of things that have happened that could have gone another way. There's, um, maybe I didn't lose my vision, you know, and I got killed, you know, maybe something else happened and, and it went a different way or there's lots of things. What ifs will drive you crazy? What ifs will ruin your life? Man? It's very true. Um, and it, it, what is, there's a phrase, I think the phrase is what's for you won't pass you by. Um, and I, I, I genuinely believe that, that it will come. It might not come when you want it to come. And this sounds like an insult, but it's the last thing that I'll say. And it actually comes from uh, a Liam Gallagher song, a Liam Gallagher out of Oasis. Now, me and my boys, big, big Oasis, Liam Gallagher fans, we had tickets to go and see him a while ago, but we, we couldn't go when my boys wasn't very well. So my eldest went. Um, and the sort of lyric is that you don't necessarily um, get the girl that you want, you get the girl that you need. Very true. And I'm not saying that I didn't want my wife, but she was absolutely the girl that I needed. Um, and everything that's happened in my life since is because of her, you know, my children, the way that I am. and Everything I do around about parenting, the, the stuff you talked about, the apps, everything I advise. I, you know, I didn't teach my children these things. They taught me. You know, I didn't know how to be a parent before I had children. I didn't know how to be a husband before I got married. You know, these are things that, like you said, you're building the bridge as you walk on it. I think that's a great description. But I think that's life in general. Um, and just don't be afraid that when you're walking through a field, you know, to to go off, you know, make your own path. You know, go through the grass nobody else has gone through. You know, take a different path. If that's what you think you want to do, you don't have to follow everybody else. And I've got three boys that, um, have autism so I look at things a little bit differently and I hate the word normal and I don't say hate very often either but I do hate the word normal because I think it's very dangerous um, but don't sort of follow what everybody else does you know make your own path and it will take you where you're meant to be yeah can I ask did you react negatively and in an unhealthy way when you got your diagnosis about your condition yeah 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 i definitely unhealthy was everything that you're not going to be able to do um and it was what's the point in trying because especially when they they tell you that um if it moves you could have a stroke you could be paralyzed these sort of things could happen that what's the point What's the point in doing anything if this is what could happen anyway? You know, I could do everything right. I could help people. You know, I could I could do everything, um, and I could still end up paralyzed or dead, and there's nothing I can do about it. So it did make me. So you're living in fear at that point. Oh, I was in. Yeah, that's. I didn't see the point. You know, and I did. I genuinely did. And it's not something I'm proud of, but I absolutely gave up. I didn't see the point. Um, and it's funny because I had to sort of. I had to lose who I was to find out who I was meant to be. Yeah. And that's that's the, that's what I've took from it, you know, and it's that is without a shadow of a doubt the number one lesson I've learned in my life is that everything I thought I was supposed to be um it wasn't, you know, it wasn't it was just part like I wasn't just a soldier, it was part of what I did. Um you know, I'm not just a father, I'm not just a husband, you know, it's it's all part of of who we are and I just put too much on the identity and the label of the things that I did and tried to make that define me. Although being a husband and being a father are two most important things in my life, 
it's not all I am. Um, and unfortunately, for such a long time, having these issues, having these difficulties, having these disabilities, I let that determine who I was and what I was. And I almost I didn't think I was good enough. You know, I, I, I was very embarrassed about myself and, and sort of who I'd become. And um, the brain believes what you tell it. Huh? Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. And I told myself I was no good, so my brain believed it. Um, and this is what I mean. I don't claim to be perfect because for, for, for what I do, for the work that obviously you've seen some of um, and the stuff that I do with, with fathers and parenting and, and around mental health, for for the world... The world it makes me sound a lot grander than I am, but for you have access to the internet, it's the world. <laughs> so for, for people to see that good side, my family have to see the bad side sometimes. Um, and that's the price that they have to pay. And I'm very grateful that they're there to sort of do that to help me, to support me. Because when you're working in the world that we work in, when you're dealing with mental health, when you hear people's pain and particularly working with fathers, that I see a lot of people that have gone down similar routes. You know, and I, you can't help someone that isn't ready to be helped, and I was that someone for far too long. But it creates a lot of frustration because I just want things to change. You know, I want better support in mental health. When I'm talking to someone that's at crisis point that is waiting two to three days to speak to crisis team, and that's not me criticizing the crisis teams. Um, that's the fact that I know how on the edge some of these people are. Um, and it creates a frustration because I've been there um, and I do get annoyed. And that sort of side of that frustration, um, my, you know, my children and my wife sometimes have to see that frustration because I just want people to not feel like I felt. And like I don't want, I'm not looking for praise. I don't want anybody to pat me on the back. But it does, it's a sort of burning fire inside that, that goes back to the fact that I wasted too many years. You know, I wasted too much time. And I don't think that my children overly suffered. Um, I think my wife did, you know, and I do feel very, very guilty um, that she was deprived of some good years um, while I was trying to figure out what my next move was. And I'm very fortunate she stood by me. And I've said this twice now, but this is the last thing I will say, I promise. Um, that there was a day in the kitchen a few years ago now, and I would take this to my grave, that... We were cooking and we like to cook together, you know, and a lot of the stuff that I talk about is trying to keep that relationship going when you when you have children because it's difficult. And sometimes you focus all your time on the children and the babies, which is right. And you think, oh, my, the relationship's solid. The relationship will be okay. Well, it's not if you don't tend to it, you know, and that balance is really difficult. So we try and do the things that we have to do together. So, you know, cooking, bathing the kids, you know, take the puppy for a walk, which is my new chore. Um... And the things that we we try and do it together, so we get still get that time, even if it's with the children, we're still together. And we cook, we cook quite a lot. We like to cook together. So this one day we were cooking, and she smiled at me. And I remember I sort of stopped what I was doing, and I put the pan down, and I said, "What are you looking at me like that for?" And she smiled again, and it was it was that teenage girl, you know, it was just that. It was a smile and the twinkle in her eyes, and I hadn't seen it in a while. And I said, what are you looking at me like that for? And she said, because I didn't think I'd see this version of you again. I thought he was gone. And, you know, when, when we sort of look at, at mental health, 
and what people go through, I think we underestimate what the person that supports them goes through. And I think that that really highlighted it and summed it up to me, you know, that I wasn't the man that she fell in love with. I wasn't even close to that, but she still loved me anyway. That's beautiful. And that's what I mean. I'm very, very, very fortunate and I'm very, very grateful. And this is what I mean that I pay my homage and my gratitude and I worship at the altar of Sarah without a shadow of a doubt every day. Well, be careful. You might be child number eight soon. So you know, <laughs> calm down with that one. I am so, broody though. I tell you that. All this oh, baby talk is driving me mad, man. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> You've done enough for society as it is. It's I all have, right. I I've populated my own little village. <laughs> so in regards to that, what would you say when you was dealing with it in a not so good way and you know, you was heading to a very bad place. What would you say if you could go back in time to your younger version of yourself, what would you say to help yourself not to reach that point and suddenly see there is a brighter side to this? There are, you're not, you're not crippled by fear anymore. How, what are you saying to your younger self just before you hit the worst part of how you're handling this? Um, do you know, I've thought about this a lot. Not in terms of you were going to ask this question, but this is something I think about a lot. And my answer is very controversial, I think. I wouldn't say nothing, Matt. And the reason I say that is that sometimes you've got to go there and come back. And I think if, if I hadn't had to go that close to the edge, maybe I'm not the man that I am today. And that's not, Arrogance, because like, I think I've made it quite clear. I, I don't think I'm overly fantastic, but I am happy with who I am. And I think I'm the best version of me that I've had. And I'm not sure that I would be who I am. And I would definitely wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing to try and help and support other people if I hadn't been there. So that's the honest answer. And I don't think I've, I don't think I've spoken about it before. And I find it quite interesting because there are times where when you look back at life and you change anything, yeah, you might change one aspect of it, but you don't know the ripple effects it could have later on in life. So would you really want to run the risk? However, in this situation, it's not a matter of your life would change, but it's a matter of how would you help yourself manage that situation more productively or in a more healthier way, if you think you needed to. Because I'm sure if I asked you, if one of your boys was in a similar headspace, what would you say to them? I'm sure you'd find something to say. If you was going in that way, and let's hope it never happens, and same with your boys, if you was to head in a very similar place that you was before, what would you say to yourself to coax yourself out of getting to the same place you were previously? Um, yeah, good question. And I suppose if from, from that angle, then if, if you turn the tables that, yeah, cause I do, especially like I said, having my boys with autism, um, and you know, particularly my eldest, some of the conversations that, that we've, we've had, I tried to be that example of, you know, don't let, don't let your disabilities or your limitations define who you are um and i tell my children that all the time um and don't let anybody tell you you can't be something so probably along that advice i'd, I'd try and be a bit kinder 
I try to be kinder to myself. Um, I was very, I was very cruel to myself, and and the opinion that I developed was very unfair. And I would never speak to a friend in that way, you know. And that's a little bit of what I try and do with myself a bit now. I'm a lot better for this now. I do try and give myself the advice, even if I'm struggling, even on a really bad day now, where you just want to, like I say, you want to go to bed. You know, you just you just can't face the world. It's all getting too much. Um, I give myself permission to feel that now, whereas I was fighting against it before. So that maybe. Um, but yeah, again, it goes back a little bit to the first answer of if I hadn't had to go through all that, I don't know if I'd have the tools that help me now. Um, and like you said, it is the bit if, if you change things. So I would be kinder to myself. I would give myself permission that if you I don't want to swear I'm trying really hard not to swear but um life can be really bad sometimes you know um and you're not the only one going through it kid you know you're not everybody's going through something everybody's got difficulties everyone's got hardships everyone's going through grief everyone's got something they've got to deal with um this is yours and it might be a little bit more than others and it might be a little bit unfair at times it wasn't what you thought it was going to be, um, but life never is. You know, it's never. We're all, you know we're all just one curveball away from a crisis. Exactly that. That's the advice. But I still do believe that it, I was. I was. It happened for a reason. You know, I was supposed to to go through that so that I end up where I am talking to your good self tonight. I like that answer, and it wasn't that I was trying to coax that particular one out of you <laughs> to a degree, <laughs> but I was just trying to get it to the point where. I'm sure there's words of wisdom you'd probably say if you could have the mentor. Like, at the moment, I'd like to think you're the mentor in your life that you wish you had when you were younger, hence what you're trying to be. So if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self and be that supporting person, what would you say to yourself? Not saying that you wouldn't arrive to the place you're at today, but what do you think would have helped support you to get to this place? And the reason why I'm so grateful for the analogy that I'm really loving at the moment where it's about, you know, we're building the bridges, we're w- walking on it or building a staircase and walking it, however you want to see it, is that it, it you can extend it further and say, there's some people in your life that are begrudging where you're at because they're saying, it's fine for you to say what you're saying because you're way over there and they have no idea how many steps of faith you've taken to get from where you started to where you are when they're looking at you and they're shouting at you from a distance they're huffing and puffing they're getting maybe a building surveyor involved or architect to say this is how life's going to work out and it's like mm, we know life don't work out like that you can have vision board all you want don't mean it's going to happen that way but you just think some people where they need to be some people aren't some people had to use different materials to what they expected to use just because that the, their situation determined that they had to change up what was on the original plans and just make do with what's happening and it's true life happens to you and it's not personal life just happens and I'm I'm in the current headspace where I'm flittering back and forth between does life happen to you or does life happen for you and it sounds like in this situation life happened for you in order for you to become the person you are and be that guy so I'm going to have to wrap this up, unfortunately, due to time. However, for people who wonder why I probably didn't say much in this conversation, because 
this gentleman is very good at talking and he covers so many topics, <laughs> so many points in there where I'd like to think that a lot of you will be able to resonate and understand that it, even though the L started off one way, you could see they'll deep seeded into other things in the life. And sometimes when we feel one way, it's not necessarily because of one situation. It could be of a multitude of different situations that's happened time and time and time way before that incident occurred. And if we don't talk to ourselves, try to have a relationship with ourselves and be honest with ourselves, we may never know the answer. Yes, it's okay to be angry and frustrated. It's fine. It's life. We have these different emotions for for those very reasons, to explore and to express them. But it's trying to do it in a manageable way where it doesn't hurt those that we love and care about and portray us in the wrong light. Because we're all nice people, let's be honest. But some of us just reside in the I'm an ass phase. And we've met some of these people in our lives and we kind of avoid them if we can. So I'm grateful for you sharing. I'll ask you this and be as concise as possible, please. If that wasn't L, what was it? Oh, mate, it was a win. Another win. Another W. Another win. Oh, mate, a massive one. Massive W. And I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life, so... It all happened for a reason. There's nothing about a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. And here you are, testament to that. So for the next two minutes, can you please share what you got going on, where people can find you? Yeah, floor is yours. Okay, I will try and be quick, which we figure that I can't do very well. Um, <laughs> yeah, so social media, anybody that wants to contact me, um, I am PMH support on most platforms apart from twitter twitter i am scott man nine because me sarah seven boys is nine um i do quite a lot of different work i do antenatal classes for dads and peer support for dads that are traumatized from difficult births or children that are in the neonatal units and um, so contact me any sort of advice i'm not what they class as a professional you know i do just offer advice from my experiences and on a professional note um, I work as head trainer and community worker for an organisation called Fathers Network Scotland. So you can also catch me there. And that's it. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me, mate. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for sharing all those lovely gems that I'm sure my listeners have enjoyed. Um, so for everyone else, thank you very much for your time, for your attention. I hope you appreciate all the things Scott has gone through. So even though what he said was the L's he went to discuss. We found out that there was other issues, other concerns, which led to him being that way, being a people pleaser, having his underlying health condition, which he wasn't aware of, and overcoming these things and how fatherhood has helped him become the person he is today, forging a relationship with the woman of his dreams who he didn't even know existed or was going to be where she was. All of these things that you would have thought, core, like, mate that's that's an L but he's telling you without even stammering with no sense of disbelief that these are straight W these are a win because he will not change or he would not change anything that happened in his life because of all the wonderful things he's achieved with his family his relationship with himself the relationship with everyone he cares about and I'd like to think that all of us can take something positive away from that. So, Scott, I thank you for being so open and honest. It's, it's, I would like to say it's rare, not on this platform, but in general, it's not as 
people are not as forthcoming with this information as you have been. So I greatly appreciate it. And to everyone, please check the show notes out, reach out to Scott. Mental health is so important. And I'd like to think that these podcast episodes help you with your mental health to know you are not alone going through what you're going through. We all got our struggles. And if you really don't understand how it works, treat people in your lives like cars. People have various different brands. So some people look like they're flushed with cash and whatever else. We all understand the rules of the roads if we're a driver. So when people don't follow it, you can get a bit upset and a bit hastily about it. But you don't understand what's going on with them. You don't know how much they pay per month for that car. It could be £500 a month. You don't know what their road tax look like. You don't know what things are broken in that car and why they haven't fixed it because they can't afford it. So just look at your life and think, You've probably done things where people don't understand why you're doing what you're doing and judging you solely based on what they can see. When the reality is, if they got to know you, maybe they have a better understanding of where you're coming from, where you're going and what support you require. So look after yourself, be kind to yourself. And I hope I hear you again. That's wrong. I hope I, I hope you hear me again in the next episode when I'll have another guest. Take care of yourself. And if you haven't already, go subscribe go leave a recommendation or comment on the podcast and I'll see you in the next one. Take care. Yeah.